if you're not spontaneous, you miss the most beautiful and essential things in life. Don't give yourself a chance. If you just follow the program as you've been taught and conditioned to do, there is no space for spontaneity. I think a lot is the difference between being open to the spontaneity that you would have from the heart as opposed to the set beliefs that you have in the head. And people are just so tuned into what's in their head now that they're just not open to something that would be recognized as different coming from the heart. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. Dan Reed returns to Salish Wolf with another incredible interview during which we traverse the intense highs and occasional lows that have comprised the landscape of his life. Following narrative trails that he maps out in his two-volume memoir, Shots from the Hip, we explore some of his most impactful experiences. Dan is best known as a leading author of all things related to Chinese culture, including Taoism, tea, herbal medicine, and Qigong. As I indicated in episode 25, The Tao of Health, Sex, and Longevity, Dan's most popular book, greatly influenced my life and garnered legions of fans. Readers will find his memoir as expertly crafted as his other books, but likely far more entertaining, as Dan pulls no punches in telling the mind-blowing history of his life. We begin this episode with a look at the influence of drugs, namely plant medicines such as ayahuasca and opium, on Dan finding his Tao. We explore philosophies and spiritual practices such as dogchen, mediumship, and channeling that have helped shape him. And we discuss how he has used much of his experiential knowledge alongside his wife to create a detox program that they have offered in many countries with incredible success. The valleys in his life have been quite deep and Dan does not shy away from sharing some of the more harrowing periods including three near-death experiences that rattled and rocked him to nearly the brink of no return, and the power of sound healing that helped bring him back. Dan is a living testament to the magical and mighty journeys life can lead us on when we open to the spontaneity of the heart. His journey has been wild and exotic, with not even a trace of the mundane. Please enjoy this episode of Salish Wolf with my friend Daniel Reed. Dan, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me back. It's my pleasure. This is something that I've really been looking forward to. As I said in our last interview, I was going to get my hands on a copy of both volumes of your memoir, which I did. 
And I was going to read those while also enjoying your high mountain oolong tea, which probably read 90% of, of both volumes while drinking the oolong tea, which was an amazing combination. Yes, indeed. That's really good. I know we're going to talk a lot about the book, so I guess we'll kind of just jump in. Your first volume, both of them are called Shots from the Hip. Your first yes. volume is subtitled Sex, Drugs, and the Tao. Now, in our last episode, we did talk a fair bit about sex and the Tao. We didn't talk much mm -hmm. about drugs, so let's start with drugs. You've had such a wild, crazy life, and yes. very often medicinal plant-based substances were involved in that journey. So let's begin there. Well, I came from, you know, the hippie generation, the, the original wave, the first wave as it was. And uh, my last two years in university were in, in UC Berkeley, where it was just full on. We had everything riots, uh, tear gas canister, helicopters flying over the campus, and of course, drugs, which at that time was more like a sacrament. And uh, it was sort of a principle that you only stay with plant-based things. And I tried just about everything. And it didn't seem to make any difference to my studies. I, I was basically a straight-A student right through. Um, but I had the long hair and the beard and all that stuff. And well, it was just a load of fun. And it was also the way I discovered my calling, which was China, you know, this mega LSD journey we had one day when I forgot I had to attend a lecture to get into a course on China. And so that was incredible because Essentially, you know, the whole stage was floating up into the air and the guy on on the stage looked like a munchkin of some sort. And but everything he said about China seemed to be striking chords in me. And uh, by the time it came out, uh, by the time it was over, I just felt that I knew I knew all that and was just being reminded. And so I had one year left. I switched my individual major to East Asian studies, jumped into every course. And uh, I took off for a year, went around the world and came back and learned Chinese and then went to Taiwan. So the whole thing was launched. My whole life was launched on an acid trip. <laughs> well, the stories that unfold between the covers of these books are truly mind-blowing. I can't tell you how much fun I had reading both volumes, which are very different, very different, and we'll get it's into that. Different. Yeah. But with the... It's interesting because with the drug focus on the first one or one of the focal points, for me, having known you as a writer of... Taoist studies and Chinese medicine, and nutrition and healing, you give a very different lens through which the reader can actually see these substances because they've been vilified for a great part, many of them, for the last several decades. And 
to hear your stories about your experiences. For example, a heavy trip on LSD, which basically catapulted you into the life that you led for the up until now. It's an incredible, incredible story that you told in the book. And it wasn't your only one, of course. And so you tell these the beautiful side of these primarily, I know LSD is not truly a natural drug, but a lot of what you've experimented with have been plant-based substances. You've used them therapeutically to heal. LSD was originally uh, from a purple fungus from the rye plant. And, you know, later it was synthesized. But the formula, the molecular formula is a natural, a natural formula. When you show in these pages how beneficial and therapeutic these substances are, and then you also show, in some cases, some of the darker sides. Um, yeah, they can be used or abused. That's absolutely true. But everything's like that. Food is like that. People abuse food and they, they get obese and get diabetes or they, they get healthy. It's, it's really nothing. I, I hesitated only briefly about whether I should write any of this. Um, and so people ask me, well, why would you want to show all that? And well, first of all, it's a memoir. What am I going to do? Um, but there's several other points is that like the kind of work I did with in health and, and uh, writing books, I'm basically showing that just about anyone can do it if they have that inspiration. And secondly, there's, there is a very ancient Taoist tradition of drugs that's, that's really kept, been kept secret. But the, some of the stuff that I've read about that some of the old Taoists used to do. I mean, they were using toxic minerals, mercury, cinnabar, to make these things sometimes, and often for not particularly good uses, uh, power, martial arts, things like that. So it's not entirely divorced from the, the, the thing I'm interested in, which is the Tao. So there's, in the title, you got sex, drugs, and the Tao. Um, it's all part of the package, but uh, yeah. Also, you know, I have a basic principle in writing. Um, you must inform the reader of things they don't know about, and you must entertain the reader to make it worth his while to plow through your book. And so in writing that particular book, especially the first volume. Um, yeah, I was trying to be informative in, in many ways on things people might not know about and to give them an entertaining story. Well, you did that on both accounts. <laughs> and as you said, a Taoist history involves a lot of shamanism. Yeah, that's right. It, it's originally a shamanist tradition. That's correct. Yeah, and you also mentioned things such as cinnabar and mercury, which are also at the root of a lot of Ayurvedic practices and medicine, which is also very shamanistic based. So it's certainly seems to be a common theme around the world. Indigenous cultures experimented, and I shouldn't actually say experimented. They learned from the plant medicines, and they learned how to use them. Because in some cases, I don't actually think they did experiment. I don't see how someone could experiment and come up with the recipe for ayahuasca that is safe to drink without well, that's, killing I was going to mention ayahuasca is a perfect example. You know, it just opens doors. 
to dimensions yeah. that the ordinary human brain is just not rigged to do. But with the plants are, also have their own consciousness and their own alchemy, and so they assist the human, and especially a shaman who stands between heaven and earth, to uh, to download information. Mm -hmm. One of my most influential books in my formative years, uh, other than the one that I mentioned that you wrote in our last episode, The Dial of Hell, Sex, and Longevity, was actually The Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby. Oh, yes. And in that, he speaks of ayahuasca and visions. And one of the most fascinating things is he talked about DNA being on the visible light spectrum. And I believe he says it's equivalent to seeing a candle flame from seven miles away. And so when we are in these altered states of consciousness with the assistance of these plant-based medicines, potentially we're actually able to see the DNA of that which is around us and to understand it at a different level. Because really when we talk about ayahuasca, as you write about in volume one, it's a combination of two different plants and the way it's prepared is very specific. So it doesn't kill the person who takes it because otherwise it would. And it's something, there would have to be a lot of experimentation to figure that out. But perhaps the shamans were, actual, were actually able to pick this up by understanding something deeper about the plants. Yeah, well, the shamans of the Amazon don't, didn't, they don't say they experimented. They said that the plants revealed themselves. I mean, yeah. you've got a, a million different plants in the jungle. How long would it take to come up with a combination of two that work like that? <laughs> exactly. And the thing about DNA, what you mentioned, um, considering what DNA is, it, it has to do with intelligence and awareness. I mean, it contains everything. And in the Don Juan books, in Castaneda, yeah, I think the one thing that Don Juan says more than anything else in the book is, it, is awareness glows. Yes. Okay, now this has been proven scientifically um, with technology, electron microscopes, and whatever that you call these things, that the DNA, which is buried deep in the nucleus of the human cell, can be magnified and focused in on and they see that it glows it gives off luminosity there's nothing reflecting off it it's not coming from the sun or some light bulb it's it it actually glows and of course in in Dzogchen teachings and buddhism and i think in all spirit spiritual traditions the idea of awareness spirit and light self-luminous light are one and DNA has that quality. And it's also very interesting that among most indigenous cultures during hallucinations or, or usage of plant-based medicines, snakes, serpents are one of the most yes. common visions. And there's often yep. two of them coiled together, connecting earth yep. to heaven, which is the symbol of DNA. The well, in, the, in the Bible, in the Bible, the snake gives knowledge to Eve mm -hmm. through the apple, right? I mean, <laughs> like an apple computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, while we're on the topic of ayahuasca, 
can you share some of your experience with that? Because what an incredible experience you did have, especially your first one. Yes, especially the first one. I think probably for almost everyone, it's the first one. I had a very good friend. He's still my friend in uh, Byron Bay who facilitates those. I mean, he's been trained in Peru for three or four years. And um, so he came to my tea table and in Byron in my house there. When we got to know each other, there was a sort of an immediate recognition between us. So as he left, he said, well, if you ever would like to try this medicine, he always refers to it as medicine, I'd be happy to share a sacred space with you. And so about a week later, I sent him an invitation, I mean, an email and to accept his invitation. And so he came over and we had an amazing night. There's a chapter in my in the second volume of my memoir about it. And yeah, the serpent manifested right away. It was coiled around the ceiling all night. And purple and green scales. And it just was like, it was keeping, it wasn't threatening in any way. It was just keeping watch. My wife, uh, Jojo, <laughs> she, this is the three of us, besides him, that's me and Jojo and a friend of mine. It was our, our first time. And ladies first, so he offered her her cup and was about to pour mine. And she said, give me another shot. <laughs> and it really surprised him. You know, I don't think anyone has ever done that. So he turned around, well, okay, and he gave her another shot. So she was uh, way out there. But I know that at one point she just disappeared from the room and she had gone into the bedroom. And she, what she experienced was disintegration of, of her body or of form. Like suddenly she couldn't see her feet. They were just gone. And it was, you know, then her legs. And she was starting to wonder what's going on. And then she looked in the mirror and all there was was this, this wavy light. And of course, she got a bit scared, I think, and said, what am I going to do, just vanish? So she came back into the room with the energy from the rest of us there and sort of joined the circle again. So I think that that medicine can take you to pretty far along the scale between form and just pure light. The other thing I learned about that particular medicine is that the, the, the essential energy in which it functions and works best is sound. And of course, particularly music. Now the shamans have particular songs that they sing to sort of invite the spirit of the goddess associated with ayahuasca into the circle. But my friend was, is just a really good musician. So he played guitar and sang. My other friend who was there, is one of the best didgeridoo players in the world. And he got a download that night. I later called it the dream drone, but he just picked it up, his, his tube up, and out came this most amazing vibration and sound, and it just spoke to us. So I don't know how much I can say in this interview about how ayahuasca works and what it can do, and or even in my book, 
but it's it's a really remarkable thing. Well, you can say as much as you want during this interview. Don't hold back for for that sake. But well, I think it's something that maybe almost everyone can benefit from at least once. Yeah. But it's, it has to be done in the proper setting and with someone guiding it who has that experience of dealing with with that dimension. Because things can get, you know, intense for people sometimes and they, they need it. I mean, I know of cases where people were just messing around with her in Byron, in fact, and uh, one guy just walked into a pond and drowned. But oh, man. I think he was invited by some darker energy or entities and told that he could breathe underwater and would find some magnificent kingdom down there. He just they found him the next morning. So, and he had just been taking it on his own. He considered himself qualified. He wasn't. Um, so it can, it can, it's a, it's a, it's a living world. The dimension you go into is inhabited by entities that are not of the sort we are. And there has to be a certain interface between them. And I think that's basically what the shaman or the facilitator does. And particularly with music. Yeah. Well, and it is, I have found so important, not just to have someone who's experienced and can hold that space, but also someone who can be trusted or who each person who's involved in the ceremony can trust. And I actually had an experience in a two-night ceremony where in the first night, the shaman said something that I really did not resonate with very strongly. And when I approached him about it the next day, there was a reluctance from him to even really acknowledge that he had said it. And ultimately, after trying to talk through it for a while, I just said, look, I'm I'm not going to take part in the ceremony tonight because at that point in time, he had lost my trust and there was no way I was going to go into that sacred space with him as the guide that I was to follow along. And maybe it wasn't him who said it. Something speaking through him. Well, it was before we had the medicine, so it was him. I almost, I almost, I almost left the first night, but we are literally moments away from drinking. So I was like, all right, I'm just going (laughs) to, I'm going to let that one pass. But ultimately I couldn't let it pass two nights in a row. Have you, did you try it subsequently? Yep, I have. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always had a very good experience with it. And as you said, and I agree with you, the first one was probably, or I don't remember if it was the first night, but the first two back-to-back nights were certainly the most cathartic in my experience. Yeah, I mean, it's a learning experience for sure. Uh, It has a lot to offer. I think one of the most remarkable things about it is it, it leaves no doubt that there are many parallel realities. What we take for reality, and especially today, I mean, everyone's looking at the same view of the world through their through their phones and, their, and, and television and billboards and, and no one actually slows down enough to think about these things. So ayahuasca just shows you that it's just, it's just 
uh, hairbreadth away. And there's a whole other world there. And, and again, I like to uh, refer to Castaneda's books because while he's been, and some people have called him a fraud and you no, know, none of these things ever really happened. It doesn't matter because just the whole system of thought that he has in his books, his teacher, Don Wine, refers to something called the assemblage point. It's a part of your your spirit, your basic awareness, which where, wherever you happen to have incarnated in, in, in a world, you have to tune into it, just like a radio or a television. We all have an assemblage point and we tune into this exact same channel when we're born. And then that channel is programmed by education, by parents, by growing up. So something like ayahuasca and peyote, things like that, LSD, they just shift the assemblage point. So what then manifests on the screen of your consciousness is a different program, a different world. And just to have that realization, I think is probably the greatest thing you learn from taking stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And ayahuasca is certainly gaining a lot of, I'll say popularity as a therapeutic tool, but sticking with the topic yes. of, of drugs, one that you write about extensively is not so commonly used or accepted, and that's opium. Can you talk a bit about your experience with opium? Yeah, well, first of all, you're wrong about that. It's just used in the wrong form. It's used um, as heroin, morphine, um, those are just fractional extracts. And then, of course, the pharma opiates, which are horrible. They're like, you know, they're 50 to 100 times more potent and addictive. And they're just fragmented. But real opium from the poppy, again, for me, this was just another step into China. I mean, everybody knows about China in the opium days and the long pipe and the little lamp. And I was just always curious about it. Well, I had my first experience in Bombay. It's written the very first chapter. Uh, you know, it was, it was legal. We, this taxi driver took us for a night on the town, took us to an opium den, uh, licensed, run by an old Chinese guy. I mean, it, it was classic. He had a long white beard and long white hair. He was very thin. And so for me, I thought, wow, this is this is great. This is a chance to try this stuff. And in the original way, I mean, for, there's many things about opium people that you never, you never take it orally. And that's why these pharma opiates are so dangerous because they completely mess you up. They ruin your digestive system, your bowel, your liver, they, your digestive organs all just freeze up. So they had found a way, and this is, again, there is no real record of who came up with this in China. It was about three, 400 years ago. Um, that was always the problem with opium, you know, like De Quincey and in, in England back there when the poets were all doing it. They were all eating laudanum, which is just pure opium mixed with some uh, port sherry wine or something. But it just causes a lot of problems. So they had developed a, a tool, a pipe, which is not a smoking pipe, but it's a vaporizer. Uh, so a very different thing. 
And so this was the way the Chinese did it. And it's something that very few people do anymore. There's not many places you can't. Now there's hardly any place you can do it. But when I came to, to Thailand, uh, I had some writer friends and, and photographers who kept talking about this place in Laos run by an old Chinese guy. I started thinking, wow, it's like a place in Bombay. So once I went there with them, and yeah, sure enough, there was, and it was a licensed den. He had a license hanging right over the wall. And there were some people there, about a third of them were foreigners. Most of them writers and photographers on assignment. And so I had the opportunity then through those years that I was living in Chiang Mai to, to fly over there. And that, that old guy, took a liking to me, I guess, because I speak Chinese, so we were able to get to know each other. And he taught me just about everything there was to know about it. And uh, it's, while it's addictive, for sure, and I, I had my experience with that by overdoing it, um, it actually doesn't do any harm to the body. It doesn't even hurt your lungs because it's it's a vapor. It's not a... It's not a burnt substance so there you go that is something that's really not known anymore yeah i mean everybody knows about oxycontin i don't know any people it's it's, it's a plague in the west but it's because you know opiates or opioids or whatever you want to call it have an affinity for the human brain. It absolutely fits into certain receptors. We have opiate receptors, but they're not designed for those chemically altered versions of it. And you got to realize also that they're all just making chemically altered versions of morphine, which is the addictive alkaloid. But opium contains three dozen alkaloids of which um, morphine is only con constitutes eight or 9%. And all the others are not addictive. Mildly, and there's codeine in there, but there's so little that it can't be addictive. But what I'm saying is that like all plants, including ayahuasca, it, the essential, and this is a, a principle in Chinese medicine too, traditional Chinese medicine, they all work in concert. You can't just take one thing out um, and then alter it somehow with something else, especially with chemicals, and then expect that to, to work in a, in a positive way medicinally. It has to be the full plant with all its constituents in there. Right. And of course, that is the entire foundation of the pharmaceutical industry to take out a specific component, to isolate it, to synthesize it in the laboratory, to enhance the effects, and then to give that to patients and yes they're going to yeah, get a pretty one standard thing you forgot to add one thing you oh. forgot to add and patented patented oh yes yes they have to to make money they got to patent it to patent it they got to do it they got to come up with some chemical quite a lot of those chemicals are byproducts of the petroleum industry like coal tar and but they fiddle around with it and make a new chemical that no one has made before and then they use that along with something they've taken from a plant or synthesized copying a plant, but it, now they can patent it. I, it's mine. I can sell it for whatever I want to. 
and then they try to use it for various things like, like painkillers mm-hmm. you know opium will kill pain very much but, it, it, but it's actually very cheap and easy to make, to grow opium but oxycontin and all those drugs are but they're very expensive and they they they're ruinous well and of course the risks are legend because when you're taking those pharmaceuticals you are not as you said getting the synergistic benefits of all the other alkaloids and components that are in the original plant and in some cases not even just in one plant but in chinese medicine as that are in maybe six or eight different plants that are part of that formula that someone may take and so to take one small component is certainly not the holistic approach to using the plant to treat health. No, not at all. And there's all kinds of side effects which are unknown because you're using chemicals with, for which the brain doesn't have any real receptors. So it basically they work by just you know hammering down certain parts of your system to eliminate symptoms. Um, but there's no way they can work in accord with human biochemistry or brain yeah. chemistry in this case. Dan, let's talk a bit more about opium. What are, and I don't want to glorify it, but what are some of the health benefits that you have experienced from it and, and continue to see with your research into oh, it? Oh, let's see now. Um, okay, I'm, I'm talking about using it the way the Chinese did, um, by Which- inhaling vapor. Vapor and taking shots of vapor from the hip, hence the name of your shots from the hip. Exactly, that's the traditional way of taking opium. I think the first thing it does, it has an amazing um, stimulating effect on on cognition. Uh, you, you have all kinds of ideas come to mind. Conversation with the guy, people smoking with you, just it, it's incredible where it goes. Uh, calming. It, it, it completely eliminates stress, and stress is not good for you. In fact, many people say the, the most dangerous con- condition of all is stress, especially chronic stress. So I think uh, I've known people who tend to be depression, depressive, have depression, who for them, you know, smoking a few pipes of opium is just like, wow. I haven't felt this calm and completely stress-free since I can remember. And of course, those are the people that are vulnerable to, to addiction. But uh, I mean, a lot of things are addictive. Tobacco is addictive, alcohol is addictive, coffee is addictive. So again, it's a matter of how you use it. If you use it properly, it's not going to do you much harm. Um, so, okay, the nervous system is what your brain and your nervous system is what is affected most. I'm assuming that you're doing it the Chinese way, inhaling the vapor, because like I said, a basic principle of all of opium and opiates is you just don't, you don't consume them orally, because then lots of problems happen. So uh, it's been associated with creativity. In China, you know, poets, painters, writers, 
Kenya to use it because it was available and, and it was legal. There wasn't any issue with it. It wasn't even morally um, looked down upon. In the West, you have this image of, you know, the emaciated rickshaw driver lying on the sidewalk, smoking opium. That's what the image they want to create is like the guy in the Bowery drinking ripple wine and uh, drooling on his chest and hadn't been eating properly. But that doesn't describe the wine connoisseur. And in China then, in those days, the, the, uh, the 19th century, it was, yeah, it was more or less a part of the culture, the con tea. Uh, one writer described um, opium as tea's alter ego. They, for some reason, they always went together. Um, even in that place in Bombay, the first thing they do is sell, brought us a pot of Chinese tea. The place in Laos, always a, a pot of good Chinese tea. Uh, I don't know, partly maybe just to have something to drink while you're inhaling these vapors, but I think there must be some sort of synergy between the effects, because I've never been in any place where they smoke opium but they don't have Chinese tea. The first benefit you mentioned was cognition. Cognition, cognitive, cognitive functions. Yeah. And, crea and creative. Okay, here's the, the thing. And I forgot who, I think it was uh, Jean Cocteau, who was a lifetime opium smoker, an incredibly, incredibly creative person. What it does is, through its effects, I mean, you've got 36 alkaloids, all of them neuroactive. And none of us have our brains working in perfect order. No one living in society does. Maybe if you live in a cave in the Himalayas, you do. But there's always something wrong, and especially today, with EMF you know, radiation and noise and you know, stress, <laughs> the pandemic, whatever. It, through its very complex effects on brain chemistry, it enables a creative person to bring creative energy into form. And what good is creative inspiration if it can't be brought into form? You might have a good, a musician has a great idea for a song which keeps going through his head, but he just can't get that music down on his instrument. A writer who has great ideas can't write. A poet who is inspired by a sunset or by a relationship with someone or by a situation, but it just the words just don't come out. Well, opium used in that way as a pure vapor containing the whole spectrum of all the alkaloids, all of which are neuroactive, for, for unknown reasons, it's just the nature of that substance enables the brain to start churning and churning and to put that creative energy into a specific form. So it can be enjoyed and understood by others. I'd say that's the main thing about it. And I'd say that's the main thing people notice about it. And along that vein, you write about completing, not just completing, writing three separate books simultaneously. Wow. Four. Four. 
<laughs> yeah, I did that. I did that as a test run because the doctor, uh, a traditional Chinese doctor, this guy was in his eighties, who I'd gone to see about. Well, I wasn't sleeping well and other things, and I'd won. I was a bit down at that time. He he's the guy who finally ended up telling me about this place and and about opium because I didn't know anything about it. I tried it once in Bombay, but um, yeah, he he's the one who who mentioned that for the first time. That's that's how I understood how it worked. And how were you able to? compartmentalize four different books at the same time. Oh, okay. So this is what happened. His, he told me he was in a roundabout way. He was toying with the idea of whether he should tell me anything, but I speak Chinese and I was speaking Chinese with him. And I kept saying, he kept suggesting patent uh, pill medicines, Chinese medicine and formulas. And I tried them all when I was in Taiwan, I said, no, I know that one. That, that doesn't work very well about that. So finally he said, okay, I think, and he told me opium. And he had told me the story of his father who was, who smoked opium back in China in the early 20th century, who was a, a, a traditional Chinese doctor and writer. And he had completed something like a three volume encyclopedia of some branch of traditional Chinese herbal medicine in one year doing that. And he said, so it really helps with creative ideas with, with writing in particular. Um, and I, I know it always stuck in my mind. So at one point, I suddenly got all these assignments coalescing right into one time. Like they all came in in the same two month period. And I was kind of mucking around with other things and I was behind schedule and I've never missed a deadline. You know, that's why publishers like my work and because I'm always deliver everything on time and it's, it's gotta be good. It's never been, I've never had a manuscript rejected. So I said, what the hell am I gonna do? And then I remembered that and said, well, let's put that to the road test. So I went to this place in Laos and got a, a, a room in a, in a guest house. Dojo came with me. I had all my papers, my materials, and went to work. And I went there in the morning, early, around 8.30, and smoked a few pipes, and then went back to my room and just worked. I did this seven days a week. And... Uh, yeah, when I was done for the day, I went back and treated myself to a few more as a reward. And of course, there was always one or two interesting people in there. So we had good conversations. And so whole, the whole thing went along like that. And I think it was eight months that I spent there, um, seven or eight months. Yeah, I got them all done. That's incredible. That, yeah, it, it is. But I mean, you can't do that every time you want to write a book. No. <laughs> Not today, anyway. And then, of course, that's the very young side of your experience, because then you also dovetailed from that into a very yin or dark experience. From the Yeah, opening. I was, well, because 
it had been an extended period of time of eight months, so you do get uh, habituated to it. And just as I was, and I was planning to go then to some island in, in southern Thailand to kind of dry out, but just the day before we left, these three guys came up from Bangkok. They were old friends of mine. All of them were connoisseurs. One was a chef. One was a Laotian prince uh, of the last king in Laos. And uh, one was uh, a writer. So anyway, they showed up. And so I said, no, I'm not going to leave now. I'm going to stay. They were going to go to Paris a week later. So I stayed an extra week and I just, I just got into it, overdid it. And on my last day, you know, I really overdid it. I think I smoked 38 pipes or something. And, and then I just went south in, to a guest house on a beach somewhere. And it, it was rough. It was very rough. But I survived. That's putting it mildly, it being rough. Yeah, yeah. well, that was... Yeah, I had an out-of-body experience there, which is described in the book. Um, that was a one-off. I, I did learn a little. It, it spanked me. Yeah. So this was, as you describe in your book, one of <laughs> remarkably three near-death experiences that you've had. Yeah. And yeah. what I find is fitting or ironic or interesting is that on the final near-death experience, you actually, in a way, brought opium back into your healing. Because the... Which one are you talking about? Well, in the hospital, they wanted to give you heavy painkillers. And they oh, wanted yeah, to right. give you heavy they narcotics. Were, well, they wanted, they wanted... Well, no, what they wanted to give me was fentanyl. Yeah. I mean, that's this stuff is... Uh, it's killed more people than anything else. A hundred percent synthetic, um, based on the morphine molecule. Three milligrams will kill you, uh, and so that's what was in the drip. You know, you just push this button, you can get a. It'll go into your drip. I, I just freaked, and you know, I told the guy, "No way!" Uh, actually, tried to pull the drip out of my arm, and they stopped me. Not meanwhile, I had just come out of surgery. I mean, I was a very up. aggressive surgery. Yeah, yeah, it was from three inches below my navel right up to the sternum, uh, eighteen inch, and just stapled together. So, okay, so he said I needed to have some form of a painkiller, and I said, just give me traditional morphine, is what I said, because obviously they're not going to give you opium. Yeah, no one, no one uses opium anymore. Um, so the guy looked at me and, and I, I gave him a long lecture on what fentanyl is. And he thought, geez, how do you know all that? I didn't even know that. Um, and then he agreed to do that. So morphine being the painkiller alkaloid and, you know, traditional morphine is nothing but a purified extract of opium. It's nothing. They don't add anything to it. There's no chemical fiddling with it. Yeah, so not nearly as balanced and healthy as taking shots from the hip with pure opium, but at least you were 
given a quote-unquote drug that is safer yeah. and certainly less harmful than fentanyl or other alternatives. It's like sugar, you know, and whole sugarcane juice is very good for you. It's got all kinds of nutrients and different things. Uh, sugar is not particularly good for you, but it does its job as a sweetener, and it's, it, but it comes from sugar cane. Um, yeah. So yeah, I didn't want to have the fentanyl. So, you know, I must say to the, to their credit, they were they accommodated me. You know, and I asked them, why don't you just give people opiate? I mean, I'm sorry. Morphine, which works, uh, it blocks the pain in the spinal cord. It doesn't ever get to the brain. Um, it's not patented, said, is it? He said yeah, it was pat. Yeah, it was a whole business thing. They didn't really know why the, the direction if it come down. I said, don't you ever use morphine anymore? And you know what? The only two places that they use morphine now: ambulances. Okay, because someone got a gunshot wound, and they want something that really works. And uh, terminal cancer patients. Now, if fentanyl was better, you'd think they'd give that to terminal, but it's not because, you know, it's just that stuff just wrecks you. It just, whereas morphine just deals with the pain without doing anything else to you that you don't want done. And of course, the whole opioid so called crisis that we're experiencing from fentanyl overdose opioid name from the very safe opium that is yeah, being vilified uh, basically as as the cause of these problems you know you know what's really driving the opioid crisis first of all these opiates like oxycontin and fentanyl and all that they do work on those receptors in the brain and okay they're painkillers but most of the people who overdose are not in pain. That's not the problem. It's because it is a very effective remedy for depression, of which there are many people today, depressives. And you know, the way it happens, I mean, I've talked to a few people, is that they don't know anything about opiates or opium or, or, or morphine or heroin. These are people who would never take this stuff. They used to, this stuff used to be very carefully kept under control. But with, when the pharma opiates came out, the doctors just started prescribing them for anything. You got a backache, you, you know, you, you broke your finger, you got a toothache. Yeah. Oxycontin, and many of these people were people who were also taking antidepressants, Prozac or whatever. And so during the month or two when they were getting their, their pharmaceutical opiate prescription for pain, the pain went away, and then the doctors didn't give them any more, and they just suddenly crashed even though they're still taking their antidepressant, but what they've learned, what their brain has learned is that the antidepressants just don't work. And so they want more of that thing that made them feel good mentally. Um, and I'm convinced just from what I've been seeing, the research I've done on it so far is that the main thing that's driving it is that people are discovering that opiates of various sorts are 
are effective remedies for severe depression. And so the issue is then, well, why not use opium? Oh, it's no good. It's addictive. Well, what about Oxycontin? What about fentanyl? This stuff is a hundred times more addictive. Uh, if you go back and just use the original plant medicine, it's going to be even more effective than the jiggled chemical pharma form of it and less dangerous. But there's no money to be made in it. No, and of course, that's the threat of holistic medicines all over the world to the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. It's not something yeah, typically yeah. that can you're be seeing that today. You're seeing that today. You're seeing that today with this COVID pandemic. I mean, there are treatments that work, but there's, you know, they don't even let them use them. They, people go in the hospital with this COVID. Well, we don't have anything for you. There are treatments that work. There are, and they're not only being suppressed, they're being heavily, heavily censored as well. So most people don't know about them. That's right. And everyone's being told there's only one solution. You've got to take one of these vaccines, which aren't really vaccines even. They're genetic therapy, and, and it's, you know, I don't see that it's really making a dent in the, the, the crisis at all. Yeah. Dan, let's go back to, I, th I think it was the final, hopefully it's your final near-death experience. And not only did the morphine help you heal, but I believe this was also when you experienced the dream drone again and the didgeridoo. Is this the case where that was also instrumental in your healing? Going back to your ayahuasca ceremony yes. with your didgeridoo friend, who uh, downloaded the dreams drone that night. It didn't have anything to do with ayahuasca at that point. Uh, it's just that I, when I came out of the hospital, I was, I mean, I couldn't even walk. And my legs were all swollen up and I was actually getting blood clots. Um, and of course, since they had me on morphine injections, during my stay in the hospital, I was also going through withdrawal from the, from the morphine. It wasn't a really serious one, but in my state then, it was really bad. It didn't feel good at all. And it could have been, you know, I just couldn't tolerate it. So anyway, I didn't know what to do. Um, so I called my friend who had been in that ayahuasca ceremony. His name is Sai. And he came up with three or four of his digitaroos uh, for, used for different parts of the body. And man, this is that first time, you know, he treated me for about 45 minutes. And it just, it just went through me and it just ironed out all the wrinkles in my energy system and my nervous system, whatever was bothering me would just melted away. And so, you know, I was really not in good shape because I, I, I wanted to get out of the hospital early because I couldn't stand the food and all the windows were sealed. And so there was no, no fresh air. And so I probably left a lot earlier than I should have. In any case, he came up, um, every day for three weeks 
and treated me with his, which, you know, I called it the dream drone. It's a completely different way of playing the didgeridoo. It's not a, the traditional style. It's just like a long drone into which the person playing puts different vibrations and combinations of sounds. And it's just pure vibration. He, 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 I was lying down and he was behind me with the mouth of the digital right over the top of my head and it just ran through my whole system. And yeah, it made a huge difference. It, uh, when I went to see my surgeon again, just so she could check up on my, how I was healing up, she was amazed. She just said, what, well, you're healing up really quick. You can, you can walk without a cane, you know, and all that. So uh, I told her about it. I think she thought maybe I was joking at first, but uh, then she did listen carefully and she just said, well, if, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. And so, yeah, that was, that's a, that's a, a form of sound healing. Pure vibration. And in that sense, it, it links with ayahuasca because that is the way ayahuasca works basically through sound vibration. And sound healing is probably potentially the oldest form of healing, maybe even predating plant-based yeah. healing. Don't forget that uh, the digidiru is uh, the oldest instrument in the world really because um, the indigenous tribes of australia they've been there continuously before the english came for 50 to sixty thousand years i mean that makes chinese culture look like an infant and that they've been using this um this instrument and it's just it's just a hollow tube and played with the breath, the breath, the lungs, the heart is there. And so it's a vibration that's just run down this tube and it causes the petrified wood or whatever's being used to make it to vibrate. And it comes straight from the heart. So it, it is, you know, the, uh, the indigenous tribes of Australia really know a lot about spirit and about healing. I mean, everyone thinks they're backward because they, they didn't invent the wheel and they don't wear shoes and they're almost stark naked. But that's because they were somewhere else most of the time. The dream time is what they refer to it. And, and so there's a lot to be learned there. I unfortunately didn't have time or the context to really get to learn about the indigenous healing tradition but the digiduru is definitely a healing tool yeah well let's talk about some of the indigenous healing systems that you have had the good fortune over your life to learn and to, to learn in quite some depth of course the third item on your first memoir sex drugs and the Tao. Uh, we've talked in our last episode quite a bit about the Tao. And then your yep. second volume is Energy, Light, and Luminous Space, which is more about spiritual type of awareness that you've developed over the years. One thing that you write about a lot is Dzogchen. Can you talk yep. a bit about that? Dzogchen is very much tied in with Tibetan Buddhism, but it's a, it actually predates Buddhism. 
it had some shamanic roots originally. Uh, but it's very much on the higher levels of Tibetan Buddhism. Almost all the lamas at some point, especially the higher level people, yogis, they, they do have Dzogchen transmissions and, and they learn Dzogchen. And Dzogchen is basically, it means, the word Dzogchen means the great perfection. So what is the great perfection? Well, the great perfection is your original condition, your original state, your real condition, not your physical body, not anything physical or, or in form. It's basically the teacher I learned from always pointed out to three aspects of the great perfection. And that is, well, space, you're formless. And that even physics, quantum physics has shown that everything ultimately is just energy that's sort of condensed. So emptiness is another way of putting it, space. Uh, the other thing is light, luminosity, which is your awareness, which goes back also to what I said about like Castaneda's teachers were saying, awareness glows. Their basic awareness is luminous. And then from that luminosity, from that clear light, refract, I use the word refract, five rays of color. This is what is traditionally called the five elements. The five elements, in, we have it in Taoism, we have it in Buddhism. It's basically the five elements are the, the ingredients or the raw material for, for everything we know in form. We, we look at it as form, as having color and solidity, but essentially it doesn't. That's just because our organs can only see so much. And so we take things as form, which are in fact just combinations of energy and different vibrational patterns. Um, so Dzogchen is basically telling you and teaching you what your real basic condition is. And in that condition, your, your, your true nature is the one thing that does not die. It's, it's what remains after the body dies. Or, and so it's the essence of spirit, of, of, of awareness, or however you want to look at it. It's the bottom line of existence. I think, you know, basically by understanding what your true nature is, I think people who follow these teachings, you know, it makes you sort of rearrange your priorities. And um, what's important is really that which lasts. And, you know, material things, I mean, I'm sure everyone likes to have a nice car and eat good food and all that. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying your life. But it's also important to, to understand what the underlying nature is. You get glimpses of, it, glimpses of it with ayahuasca, for example. Um, but, you know, that's, you can't run around all day drinking ayahuasca. So Certainly not. Just, to have a, just to have a basic grasp of what, what your real nature is, what, what we all share in common, what everybody shares in common, and not only what everybody, but we share in common with nature, with the trees, with the animals, 
uh, is that basic formlessness, um, non-material form. Um, anything that's alive has a luminous light to it, which if we had the eyes to see, okay, so you can, that's what they call the third eye, the sixth chakra, you can see these things. And, and energy, and I think energy is the underlying common denominator in all the traditions, like Taoism talks a lot about energy, Qigong, uh, the breathing and the exercise, the energy of plants, of medicinal plants, what type of energy they have. Um, everything is basically composed of, of energy in different forms. Well, I know Dzogchen had a huge impact on both you and Jojo. And I also know you're both very spiritual individuals. And of course, we've talked about this uh, privately. And I know you've met with my wife, who also is very connected to spirit. And mm -hmm. some of the stories that you share, especially of Jojo's ability to connect with spirit are really profound. And I think for some people who haven't had that connection before or haven't had the awareness of that connection, I think those stories are going to have potentially a very big impact on them for better or worse. Some people may dismiss them as being nonsense. I hope people don't yeah. because mm. what Jojo has been able to tap into over the years has really been incredible and it's helped to guide yes. you guys so much in your life yeah it's, it's very difficult to uh, to describe these things i've certainly been connected with people who do channeling work um and mediums um but and i've seen it done in taiwan that's one of my Taoist teachers places i talk about that in the book um at one point, when she first came to join me in, in, in Thailand, um, she was, she'd be talking in her sleep and in Japanese. And, and I didn't even know she knew how to speak Japanese. Uh, anyway, as it turned out, if her grandmother, who was born in Japan, had died only about six months earlier, and apparently was trying to contact her. So that was coming through. And so we did a few things. We, uh, we fasted for a week and got kind of cleared ourselves up and cleansed ourselves. So, and I tried to sort of um, simulate the conditions under which I saw this teacher of mine in his, uh, in his place in Taiwan, how he had his mediums go into a trance-like state. So we played with it for a while. Well, actually, we didn't play with it. The first night after we did the cleansing and clearing, um, she something you could tell something was coming down through her top of her head, and suddenly her her tone of voice and, and everything. At first, it spoke to me in Chinese, in Japanese, and. And I said in Chinese that I don't speak Japanese, and she switched to Chinese. Um, and so this was 
a being, uh, an entity or something in a different dimension who was connected with Jojo somehow and concerned about her. And so, so began, you know, like years of sessions, which I did with her. I kept a journal of most of those sessions. And I mean, she seemed to have know about just about everything, especially things on a spiritual level. I, I did have a lot of questions to ask. And I always got really clear, uh, cogent answers about things that Jojo had no training in. She herself had never been much interested in spiritual things, never went to temples or things like that. So, whereas I've been studying these things for a long time. So, this couldn't possibly be coming from her brain. She didn't have any background in this. And yet, the most esoteric things that I could talk about, there was always a very clear answer and often revealing things that I didn't realize, answering my questions, basically. And always, um, we never got steered wrong from any of these sessions because, you know, there are cases of people who do channeling and media and stuff, and, you know, you can get some... strange entity come through posing as a god or a spirit or something and, and, and really cause you a lot of trouble. I don't think there was anything like that. We never had any negative things. And this, this person, I end up calling her granny because she introduced herself as her grandmother. Um, she didn't make any, uh, never posed as a god. Or, or, or some sort of enlightened being or something. She just was herself. She was interested in things in her lifetime. And now she was in a dimension where she could see a lot of what's going on outside of our dimension. And so she just shared it with me. The only thing she asked of me is that I took good care of her granddaughter, which I've been doing. So yeah, very interesting stuff. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you shouldn't mess with this or mess with that. And I'm aware of that. Um, but I never felt I was messing with anything. Whatever was coming through Jojo from this entity was connected with, the only thing I can say, it was connected with light and not with the dark. Yeah. Well, and I firsthand experience can say that the mediums who I have worked with it's light that's coming through it's and i actually just yeah. one of my most recent interviews is with a medium by the name of richard Studdle. so for anyone who's interested in mediumship take a listen to that episode and it's it's really fascinating and for some people it's just i know it's not going to be something they have an interest in and so be it i really appreciate that you have it in your book i know it's been such a part of your journey and you write about it yeah. in such a profound and beautiful way well, I'm interested in anything that really is real, uh, as not as unreal. I mean, a lot of the things going on right now are really unreal, you know, in the sense that they're not what they appear to be. There's things going on behind the curtain, which are not good. And so energy, light, and luminous space, you can't go wrong with those things. Yeah. 
you write a lot about two things that I wrote down actually as I was reading through your second volume because I wanted to talk to you about them. Uh, yeah. Ritual and spontaneity. And in your life, you have managed to find, I would say, a, a way or a place for these two seemingly disparate ideologies to coexist. You have always been deeply ritualistic. And as the reader will learn from reading your memoirs, you have also been incredibly spontaneous throughout your life. How do you find mm -hmm. the balance point between these two? Well, um, ritual, you know, I'm ritualistic about many things that are just very basic. I mean, I'm ritualistic about cooking, smoking opium in a place like this place in Laos where they have, and you know, the guy taught me how to use the equipment. That's ritualistic. I think writing is ritualistic. It, it takes a certain technique that you repeat daily and on, on, a, on a timely basis. And I find that very necessary to getting anything done in a creative way. But I mean, there's also very negative rituals, which I steer far away from. I mean, all these strange cabals with their rituals, their satanic rituals and torturing children and all these things. That's, those are also rituals. So it can, it's a two-edged sword. It can be positive or negative. And I just try to keep to, to rituals which, you know, I can directly manifest some sort of creative energy and, and bring it into form. Cooking is a ritual that brings into form a delicious dish on the table that other people can enjoy. It's not just slop. And, you know, writing brings up, brings forth a book. And it, writing is, I'm very ritualistic about writing. I mean, I have to have a Mont Blanc fountain pen for writing key passages, which I don't want to do on a keyboard, because I find that it, the energy comes down from my, my heart or my brain, down my arm into the pen, through the it flows through the ink, and that's very different than using a keyboard. Then I copy it onto a computer board. So that's the ritualistic aspect. Spontaneity is, well, if you're not spontaneous, you miss the most beautiful and essential things in life. Don't give yourself a chance. If you just follow the program, as you've been taught and conditioned to do, where there is no space for con uh, spontaneity. I mean, we talked about how I came across China and Chinese studies. What when I took this massive dose of, of LSD that I'd forgotten I had that class. I just went there and it was totally spontaneous. This talk started and spontaneously I recognized it and went still <laughs> tripping to the administration building and set my course spontaneously from that experience. I, I, I took a major in that subject and I've been doing it ever since. I think the most important relationships in life that you, where you find you know your soulmates your your real friends 
who have come back and you recognize them, all of those are spontaneous meetings. But they don't do any good if you if you go into them with a program or assumptions. You have to be open to life creating spontaneous situations which really reveal something. And to do that, you have to pay attention. You, you, you pay attention to what's happening around you rather than what's just happening in your head. Another way I think I refer to it somewhere in my book is the old saying, seeing is believing. I mean, you see something brand new. It, it, it's never occurred to you before and it, it, it comes through your five senses and you, you learn something new, that's believing. But today, it's the opposite for most people. It's believing is seeing. They only see what they believe. It's, I mean, it's like, again, coming down to the situation in the world today and the, the censorship of the media and what's allowed. I mean, everybody's on, on social media, it seems. I stay away from it, Facebook, whatever, but all of the stuff that's on there is a belief system that someone somewhere wants everybody to believe. And then even though they see something totally that doesn't fit that belief system that they've been programmed with, they don't actually see it. They say, no, that's, that's not true. I mean, a good example would be someone who they, they know somebody who took a vaccine or a shot of something and dropped dead or had a heart attack, but they don't, they've been, they believe that that's medicine, that's good. And so it's something else, they don't see the danger there. So spontaneity, I think is simply being able to be open enough to see and then learn from what you see, i.e. change beliefs that need to be changed, that are unsuitable to the situation you're in. Most people these days, they will not change their beliefs for anything, even though they see right in front of them something happens that's totally contradictory to what their belief system is. So they don't, there's, you never learn, you never mature, you never develop unless you're because a lot of the things we learn as children and, and, and in school and all that are not necessarily suitable to a new situation 30 years later 50 years later yeah spontaneity to me is following heart's intuition which is very different from the belief system that you're speaking of which is basically built on habituation and habituation is very different than ritual because ritual is mindful whereas habits yep. i find are very unmindful they are things that we do to avoid being present in a moment whatever our habitual reactions are whereas ritual keeps us very much rooted in the moment that's right ritual is something and ritual has a certain connection for me at least with some sort of a creative process that you want to, to bring some idea or something and manifest it in form. Even if it's the same ritual done every day, the result may not be the same every day. And then being spontaneous at the same time to the result. 
and maybe yeah. learning something different. For any listeners who want to hear more about two of your key rituals of Qigong and what you call Qigong, please listen to the previous episode because we go into great detail about your Qigong and Qigong practice. Yes. I mean, that's, that's still my, those are the two pillars of my life still. Um, Qigong and Qigong. Uh, and, you know, the Qigong works with, with your basic energy. And it's sort of like a tune-up. It's like keeping your engine tuned up, uh, your car, your motorcycle. You don't just let it start falling apart. Uh, it's a tune-up for the day. I think a lot is the difference between, you know, being open to the spontaneity that you would have from the heart as opposed to the, the set beliefs that you have in the head. And people are just so tuned into what's in their head now that there's, they're just not open to something that would be recognized as different coming from the heart. Mm -hmm. Dan, you write a lot about the wheel of life. Can you elaborate on that? Well, the, the wheel of life, of course, is a, a term used in Buddhism and Hinduism about what they call reincarnation or having, you know, many lives, many lives, one after the other. And each time you come back uh, due to karmic forces of things that happened in previous lives. And it's supposed to be an evolutionary system whereby you finally don't need to come back in a physical body and can go to a higher dimension. But the wheel of life, in, in my view, also refers to just the process of life itself within one lifetime, it's starting when you're born and it ends when you die. And that wheel turns, and sometimes it's just turning in place, and sometimes it's taking you somewhere. So I see it, the wheel of life being sort of a metaphor for life itself, whether that life is just, you're just spinning your wheel or whether it's going somewhere, taking you somewhere new. And then, of course, the, the progressive lives that we all have, because the, there's a part of you that doesn't die. It's called the spirit, it's called the soul, it's called awareness, the great perfection. It doesn't matter what it's called. And that will come back due to vibrational forces within your field to give you another round of life, probably to learn what you didn't learn last time or to learn something new, basically until you graduate to a higher level. And karma has always been something that has guided you quite quite a lot in life, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, people think because it's a Hindu word or a Sanskrit word, it must be some strange oriental concept, but it's not. It's a karma just means action. And then what's every action has, an, has a reaction. Um, so anything you do with the, the three ways you manifest your energy in the world, body, speech, and mind. You, you can 
do something physical action you can use your breath your energy to speak that's a vibration and a thought a thought also has vibration and so everything you manifest with your energy from your field into the world leaves a vibrational imprint in your field action reaction and so that's your karma and that's basically a blueprint it's a blueprint for what happens to you within this lifetime known as instant karma and what happens where you go what dimension you go to in the next life but all of this i see it more as a law of physics it's vibrational uh, ultimately everything boils down to vibration everything physical every tree every every word we say thought we have food wind sun it's all basically vibration that's the bottom line and so we have this field of energy everyone has their own field and what we do what we say and what we think in a particular lifetime leaves a certain blueprint changes the, the vibrational imprint and that determines the, the experience you have subsequently in life as well as subsequently in the next life it's something you create yourself so really it's <laughs> the universe is infinitely just that's how i look at it if there are certain laws that you just that they apply whether you like it or not or whether you understand it or not and those things uh those things are what interested me most you know in the early part of my life it was sex drugs and the dao what's the dao mean way the way okay the way of sex and drugs that's fine but later as i got older and i settled down with jojo then i was more interested in the underlying the underlying factors the the essence as you speak of karma right now, it really puts, as a concept, it puts us in control of our destiny because by taking full accountability, we're able to change that karmic record moving forward. And until we learn and grow from a lesson, as you said, we're going to, the wheel of life is going to keep on turning and keep presenting us with that lesson again and again until we get it. Until you don't, until you don't need a wheel. You can just fly. I mean, I see the wheel as, you know, the wheel as being something of this sort of physical world. You got wheels in a car, you got wheels in a, in a watch, you got wheels in factories. The wheel, it's a wheel turning in a physical world. And then ultimately, you want to raise to up to a dimension where you don't need a wheel. You're just in space, in luminous space. There's many incredible people who you write about who have influenced you during your lifetime. One in particular I'm hoping we can talk about, and that is John Blofeld. Oh, John Blofeld. Yes, what a wonderful man he was. He, uh, 
I read his books in the in the seventies when I was in Taiwan. I don't know. A friend of mine gave me a book by him, and there's something about the way he writes uh, attracted me. I mean, I'm a writer, and I'm attracted to good writing, but there was something else in there. There was a, a compassion for the reader that he wanted to trans transmit something that the, the reader could use and that he truly believed in. So I read all his books. Um, and then somebody came to Taiwan. It was actually a journalist who wanted me to hire me to take him around and to the best restaurants in, in Taipei. And I'd been introduced as a person to, to approach because I knew all about nightlife, sex, drugs, and the Tao. So in the course of the, the last dinner I, at the restaurant, I took him to, uh, just out of curiosity, I asked him where, where, which city he'd covered before. And he said, oh, Bangkok. And I said, well, who took you on in Bangkok? And he said, oh, a writer, an English writer named John Blofeld. You know, and I said, what? It doesn't... It, doesn't he live in Cambridge or Oxford? That's where he's from, England. He said, no, no, he's been living in Bangkok for 35 years. He knows the place inside out. So from him, I got the guy's, John Blofeld's contact. I wrote him a letter and said I would love to meet him. And he wrote back and invited me. He said, fine. And I didn't realize it, though, but he was actually dying of cancer at the time. Um, but he welcomed me there. He lived in an old-fashioned, traditional Thai house that some, some somebody related to the royal family, a princess or something, had built for him because she liked his books on Buddhism. And um, so, yeah, we drank tea together. In fact, it was his book, *The Chinese Art of Tea*, that got me from being a coffee addict, basically, into a tea person. Uh, I mean, I completely switched over to the Chinese art of tea as opposed to just being someone who slurps up a lot of coffee every morning to get going. And yeah, I spent two months in Bangkok. I planned to go for two weeks, but spent two months there and got to know him well. And he was just a wonderful man. He was a good writer. Uh, and he was interested in things. He wrote books on Buddhism, uh, in particular Tibetan Buddhism, which was what I was interested in, and Taoism. So there was a. In the end, I also became friends with his Thai daughter. He had, a, he had an adopted Thai daughter, and after John died, um, she invited me to come live in his house. By that time, I'd moved to Bangkok. So I think John was largely instrumental in my interest in Thailand. Well, I'm currently, upon your recommendation, reading his memoir, which he wrote in Chinese and you translated back into English. Um, oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely loving it. Yeah, that was very interesting that, you know, he... He wrote that as a serial for a Chinese newspaper in Hong Kong. And it was basically, a, he was writing to his Chinese friends. He never had any idea or notion that it might appear in English. So he 
he wrote in a, a particular way. He was sharing his love of China and, and his 18 years there, which he missed so much for his Chinese friends. But I got the uh, translation rights, but it was like almost 20 years before it was published because I couldn't find a publisher interested until 2006. And it came out and, you know, all these fans of John's books suddenly realized there was another book available by him. And it was his memoir. Yeah. It was well written. The Chinese is, is very good, too. It is. And I think it's worth mentioning that the book probably wouldn't have been completed by John if it wasn't for your intervention as he was yeah. heavily... <laughs> Pharmaceutical <sick>. intervention. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting, actually. Um, he was taking, he'd been taking a, a course of chemo for this lymphatic cancer that he had. And finally, he just, it, it just got him so down that he, he just stopped it. But he, when I came to him, uh, in the, the first week I came to him, he told me about this memoir and that he was only halfway through it and that he would never finish it. And he was just, he was so upset by that. And I said, well, what happened? You told him about the chemo. And I said, well, he, he just said his brain seemed frozen, non-functional, probably from the chemo. Um, so I introduced <laughs> a pharmaceutical called um, hydrogen. Um, Interestingly enough, this is not a typical pharmaceutical drug made from chemicals. It was developed by none other than Dr. Albert Hoffman, who discovered in the process of developing hydrogen, accidentally discovered LSD. It was LSD 25, they call it 23. It was his 23rd experiment with this particular, it was all, it was made from uh, ergot. Ergot was, is the mold from the rye plant from which LSD originally came. But he was trying to make this thing, this hydrogen, and he finally succeeded. When he put the, the LSD, which he didn't find useful, it wasn't part of, it wasn't right. He put that on the shelf and what he did with it later is history, but he finally did succeed in developing hydrogen, and it's a nootropic. A nootropic is something that enhances cognitive functions. I've used hydrogen many times. I've used hydrogen to write books. Uh, I've turned so many people onto hydrogen; they love it. It's hard to find these days, and in America, my God, you got to have a prescription. Uh, I used to buy it in Thailand over the counter. It's not a dangerous drug. It's not addictive. It doesn't have any psychedelic effects whatsoever. It just really clears your mind. And one thing it does, it repairs dendrites. And this is what happened to John. The dendrites are fine filaments that connect your brain cells. And the chemo had probably just disintegrated them. So I recommended... I brought him a box of hydrogen and told him how to take it. I, I told him to take a strong dose. I came back three days later 
and he was just elated. He said, what was that stuff you gave me? He said, I am writing again. I'm going to finish this book before I die. And he sent his daughter out to buy a carton of it. And from then on, he was chipper. I mean, he was in stage four cancer, but he was really bright and cheerful. He had plenty of mental energy. He finished his book. And we went out a lot at night to have dinner. He knew all the chefs in the Chinese restaurants. He'd go in there and yak at them in Chinese and order the meals. And it was fantastic. It really, really was. I think it's ironic simply that the guy who discovered hydrogen was Dr. Hoffman, who in the process of working on that, on that medicine, discovered LSD. Now, is hydrogen something that is used at all in the medical system today because it sounds well, like it, it used it to has be, a place it used to be used a lot in uh, in france um and, and in europe overall more so in europe uh i don't know about america uh but it's it's known to people who are working on their phd thesis it's known to graduate students all over the world who care about their their performance and you know the, the word goes around so it's a well-known drug it's one of the oldest pharmaceuticals around it's been out since 1950 or something it's been tested inside out in, in mega doses also it's totally harmless non-addictive non-psychoactive in the sense of you know psychedelic and it just works. It repairs your brain cells. It, re it also increases oxygen supply to the brain cells. Well, it certainly sounds like something that at the very least should be considered for hospice care. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. John's experience. Yeah, it sounds but, incredible. But they do the opposite things mostly. They, they, they give them... They sedate people. They give them... Yeah. Thorazine and, and make them mentally dead, basically. Yeah. Uh, that's really a shame. Yeah, it is. I have two very different topics I want to go into next. And one of those is the fact that you and JoJo have established yourselves over the decades as being, I'm going to say, pioneers and in health, leading retreats that you have led. So I want to maybe end with the positive side of those retreats and the experiences you've had. But before we do that, one thing that you share so courageously, I think, in your second volume is the dark days and following that third and again, hopefully final near-death experience, you really fell on some very hard times. And I think you have done a great service for your readers to talk about that experience so openly as you do, because I think it could really help some people through their dark times. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about that for a little bit. Well, yeah, I was hesitant about writing about that stuff, but um, well, it's glad, I'm glad to hear that you found it useful and helpful. Um, because for me, it was particularly difficult. I've always been someone 
who knows what I want to do and does what I want to do and does it quickly and thoroughly and usually very effectively. But this was, it was due to the, lot, the amount of blood I lost from this bleeding ulcer, which just came out of the blue, by the way. I, I don't know. It just struck like lightning. And I was in China at the time, so it took me a week to get back to Australia, to the hospital. So I went into this thing called a code blue, which is basically your heart, your blood pressure drops to zero, your heart just about stops. And so there was no oxygen going to the brain. And so, I mean, these guys, if I had been in any other hospital, I, I would have died, or at least been brain dead. But they pulled me out of it less than a minute before brain death. So I don't know what it did, but it, it left me a bit crazy. Um, I wasn't myself. My personality was all scattered. It's like taking, you know, one of those sand mandalas that Tibetans make. They spend a week making a complicated mandala out of sand, and that's your personality. And then at the end of it, they just... They just scatter the sand. That's how I felt. So, uh, yeah, a lot of the things that I describe in that chapter, I and mean, for instance, I should have just stayed home. I shouldn't have been traveling. But for some reason, I felt compelled to run, go to the airport, jump on an airplane. And I did some of these. I mean, I'm amazed I didn't get arrested as a, a person of interest, a questionable character, because I did some really crazy things. And this went on for years. And I mean, in the end, we ended up back here in, in Thailand, which actually I had no intention of coming back here. Um, so what is the lesson to be learned there? Uh, one thing is that I still have my partnership with Jojo. She's been watching over me. And uh, life goes on. You just have to pick up the pieces where they fall. And um, you know, it was a, for me, it was a rough time because when, when you're in, I mean, I, it made me understand insanity and, and, and psychosis in a way I never had before because I've had people ask me about that many times what to do about that. And while I could look it up and do research, I didn't really know what to say. But this really taught me a lot about that. Because when you're in that state and the brain chemistry is running, but it's not going through the right circuits, the wires are crossed, that's the way it is. You think you're, that's the world as it is. You're not aware of what you're doing. And then the next day, something else, another wire crosses. So I don't know how long it took for the for the brain chemistry to sort itself out but it finally did settle down it took five years or so and by the way look, they don't tell you anything about this the doctors you know yeah you had a code blue this was the most severe one i ever seen in, in this hospital blah 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 but what can they tell you because there's no instrument that can measure which circuits have been damaged or impaired in some way all there is is the behavior that comes out of it 
Well, it sounds like such a harrowing experience. It was harrowing, yes. It definitely was. <laughs> I guess it was your fourth near-death experience, really, because it, it was touch and go for a while. And yeah. again, thank, thank you for sharing it. I don't think there'll be any more near-deaths. It'll just be the real one. The real one. <laughs> Hopefully a long time from now. Well, maybe. So you and JoJo over the years have created a detox program, I'll call it. Renew Your Lease on Life? Yeah, Renew Your Lease on Life. I came to know of you and your work through the book, The Tao of Health, Sex, and Longevity. And as you and I have talked since our previous interview, I was able to pinpoint that I probably found out about that book while doing a detox cleanse in Thailand. You said it was probably at Koh Samui, and it was probably... Yeah, and it was probably at a retreat that Jojo was involved in helping to, I guess both of you were involved in helping to set up the protocol. Yeah, I think it was called, called the spa, probably. Um, the guy who set that up, yeah, he did base it on that on my book. Can you talk some about that protocol and that program that you have run for so many years in so many different places around the world and the impact that's had on people? Well, I came up with it by doing it myself for 10 years or so, and mostly in Taiwan, a couple of times in Thailand. But I never developed it for use with other people. I mean, the last thing I want to do is go into a bathroom and give someone a a colonic. Um, I did it all myself. And so from what I learned from it, I used that in my writing. But when Jojo came from Taiwan to join me in Chiang Mai, she was toxic. I mean, she was so toxic. Her liver was messed up. She had, she was, she's got beautiful skin, but it was all, there were welts all over the place. I don't know. What was wrong. So I, I just, like the second day she came to see me, I, I put her in the bathroom with a, Klima board, a colonic irrigation kit. She locked herself in there and gave herself a cleanse. And that was it. She was, she came out of there sparkling and happy. And she said, that was such an amazing experience. I love this. Tell me more about it. So I told her about it, what I knew. And she did a few programs herself. She did some with me. And then she developed a way of a system of doing it where she could get a group of people, no more than five or six at a time, maybe eight, but where she would go into the bathroom. Usually you do these things yourself, but she would go in and work on their bowel in a way that she could find where the real impacted material was and she'd work and just keep going until she'd loosened it all up. And we also adjusted the program a bit in terms of which supplements we used. Um, and later she added a liver flush to it for the last three days. Um, I think we've been doing that for about 25 years. Uh, it started out in Bali. We went to stay in the beautiful Balinese compound of a friend of mine and his, his part, his business partner was 
on the, she couldn't even stand up. She had something wrong with her. Jojo figured it out. She put her on the program. Next thing, her whole family wanted to do it. And people's health was getting better and they were losing weight and the digestive systems were working again. And they, it sort of evolved to the point where her hands, because remember she channels too. And so somehow, I guess some of that energy was filtering down through her heart into her hands. So we discovered that after a while that she was actually loosening up energy clots. I call them clots because they're like clotted blood in the internal organs, you know, trauma, anger, uh, grief, these things get stored as energy clots in the internal organs. And she was in the process of working on the bowel to remove waste impacted waste she was also loosening up some of this stuff uh, and that energy would then it would break up and it would sort of come out sometimes uh the the person who she's working on would kind of re-experience a trauma or have a certain memory of it it was clear that the the client was experiencing something on a mental level an emotional level, she would tell me what she saw. She would work on that that organ, the liver, the, the kidneys, wherever it was, and a picture would come to her mind. She would just see it. And then she would tell me about it. And then depending on who it was and how open they were to this sort of work, in a consultation later, I might say something like, well, how did you happen to respond to that thing that happened in such and such a place when you were seven years old? And they'd say, how did you know about that? You know, I said, well, this is, she saw that. It was hiding in your liver or your kidneys. And, you know, sometimes they would just start crying. Sometimes they would get frightened and just don't want to talk about it anymore. But again, if the person was open to it, we would do a snow, Jojo would offer them the opportunity to work on that, on clearing that issue from their systems. And there were some real interesting things then too, stuff jumping out of their bodies. It seemed like they were on the, on the table and shaking and all that until that energy just sort of left their bodies. So that, I'm saying all this is because from the basic idea of cleansing the body the, and the, mainly the toilet, yeah, your bowel and the liver, the filter, her work progressed up to cleansing out stuff on an emotional and mental level that was stored in the organs as energy clots, congested energies which held it there and the person was always experiencing this trauma uh, or depression or fear because it was stuck in, inside their organs where, where that energy resides. And then she would clear that up and then, you know, talk about a relief. That was a cleanse on a, on a higher level. So we had a lot of clients Probably half of them in any program are returnees. They come back. They want to continue with their physical cleansing, but they also want to continue with, with the mental, 
emotional clearing. Now, I don't take any credit for that. That's JoJo's work, and she loves it. I mean, you know, it doesn't bother her about the smell of this sludge coming out of their bodies and uh, the time it takes to do that with each person. She can go through eight people in one day. She doesn't eat. She'll just drink coconut water during the entire program. And we've done it mostly in, in Bali and then in Dali, in Yunnan, and a few times in Thailand. We were doing it here when we moved back here, but this whole shutdown thing has made it impossible for people to come. Yeah. Dan, tell me about the colonics and where did the coffee concept come from? Well, I follow the work of Bernard Jensen and yeah. and V.E. Irons. And... Um, that's what they do. But uh, coffee, coffee enemas have been known for a long time. And the coffee does several things. First of all, it's a stimulant, the caffeine, it stimulates the, the bowel lining. Uh, it's, it's a cleanser, it cleans. Um, the lining of the bowel, because coffee is, is alkaline when you just pure coffee. If you're drinking coffee, it'll alkalize your stomach unless you put sugar in it and it acidifies. But I think the main thing it does, when you put coffee in a colonic solution or even in, a, in an enema, it goes up, the coffee goes up through the bile duct into the liver and it just causes the liver to expel toxic bile. And so that comes down through the bile duct into the bowel for, for elimination. So you're getting a lot of stuff out of the liver. The liver is a huge organ and it's, there's a lot of waste stored in there. So the coffee, I think, is to stimulate the, the liver to expel that stuff and also to stimulate the bowel. And I love the work that you both used to combine with that, and especially Jojo with her intuition and massage to be able to release the emotional buildup, the clots, as you call them. Because I think very few people actually understand what happens with suppressed emotions. I think yeah. they just think, let's just suppress them and they'll go away. But they don't. No, they, they don't. They literally will bury themselves in our system, in our organs, and they will fester there and either will be miserable as a result of them or will go through a process such as this that will help to bring them back into circulation and awareness and help them to be processed and then expelled from the body. And really, I think that's the only way to heal from them. And of course, there's many ways of doing that. And it could be as simple as crying or talking about it. But the results that you guys have been able to get have been extraordinary in helping people to physically release those. Yeah, because people aren't, a, you know, if you're going to cry it out of your system, or, or talk it out of your system or whatever, you have to be aware of it. You have to be conscious of it. 
And most people aren't conscious of these things. They act on them. They act out of fear. They act out of anger. Uh, they act out of trauma, resentment, and they think that's all just normal. They don't realize that it's a toxic thought or emotion that has been repressed, suppressed. And that, like I said before, it's a form of energy. That's all. And, and, and instead of letting it get, get out of your system and, and get rid of it once and for all, you, it's repressed. And based on the five elemental energies, what relationship, you know, the liver is the wood element, which and anger and depression are wood emotions and fear relates to the water elements so it gets stuck in the kidneys. All of these things fit into the traditional Taoist system of thought, the five elemental energies. Um, so the way she works, she doesn't talk them out of it. She doesn't ask them what happened when they were children or something. She finds where it's stored with her hands loosens it up and also you know she's giving a very high vibrational energy through her hands that stuff is very low vibration and very dense it just gets scattered and as it comes out of course the person is re-experiencing that original thing yeah and one of the five elements as you speak of them the bowels the large intestine is metal and metal and the large intestine represent letting go. Just as yeah. we let go of our bowels, if our metal energy is obstructed, such as having physically an obstructed large intestine constipation, then we have a very difficult time of letting go of our emotions and processing them and healing from them. The, and in the yin-yang system of linked paired organs, the bowel is linked and paired with the lungs that's right well, you don't speak out you don't speak out and i find you don't have inspiration which yeah. comes from the lungs we <laughs> cannot inspire if if the metal on the other side the large intestine is all constipated that's right and that's so weird. it really leads to a lack of creativity and and beauty for life that's correct you know i was thinking of i don't think i'll ever get around to doing this but Renew Your Lease on Life, being the name of our program, to create a program or write a book called Release Your Lease on Life. Yeah. Kind of telling people sort of a way to deal with death gracefully. Yeah, I think that could be very helpful and profound, really, because that's something in our culture we cling to. Yeah. We cling to those last dying days and we typically don't end up in a very peaceful place until it is no i mean there's denial and the end there's anger and, and you try to make a last minute deal with the devil or the doctor or god or the priest but i mean you know death is just about the only thing in life you can be certain of it's gonna happen yeah yeah well, it's been two hours, so I, we should probably wrap it up. I really thank you for the time. I, I wanted to conclude. I just want to talk about my impression of 
shots from the hip, both volume one and volume two. The, as I said earlier in the beginning, they're very different books. Volume one is an absolute page turner. It is so entertaining, <laughs> so unbelievable. I can't believe the experiences that you were able to bring into your life because you brought them all in. You were following your intuition of your heart and being spontaneous and it's an incredible journey that's great that you I'm went glad through. To hear that. uh, that's a great review and it, it's it all happened yeah well it's i can tell and then volume two an equally amazing book but a very different type of book and you really switch gears and there's a lot of lessons to be learned in that book from your direction that you give on Dzogchen, on Taoism, on Buddhism, on spirit and karma, and the way you weave in all of these healing experiences that you've had. So uh, also a very profound read. And I think both can be standalone books and enjoyed. I loved reading them back to back. And I think of I've read many of your books. These certainly stand out as some of my favorites. So thank you for bringing those to life and letting the world see them. Well, it's good to hear that because, like I said, I was hesitant at, at times about how much to write about. And um, I finally decided just to tell it like it is. I never expected to write a memoir much less published one, but it just happened. So I just followed through as I usually do. And where can listeners find these books? Well, I, these are self-published. Uh, oddly enough, I couldn't get any of my old publishers interested. Um, well, I, I will say volume one was pretty scintillating. So I'm, that could be, uh, and also, I'm not surprised. No, I'm, I'm, they're used to books about, you know, Chinese herbal medicine and this stuff. Maybe they thought it was just too far out for them. And yeah, and maybe it was. So I, I mean, I would still like to find a publisher because I just don't like self-publishing very much. But I did self-publish these and they're on Amazon.com, both in Kindle okay. and, uh, and in print. And people can also find links to them from your website. They're right Dan on the Reed. they're right on the home dot org. Yeah, danreed.org. Um, there's links to them, I think, right on the home page now. So that'll take you right to the to the link on Amazon. Awesome. Well, again, amazing books. So many wonderful life lessons contained within the pages. And what a life you've lived. It's really, it was incredible to sit back with my oolong tea, multiple, multiple pots of oolong and read through Good. the memoir. The word colorful comes to mind. Um, it, it was a colorful life. Uh, but the word colorful in, in Chinese also means sexy. Oh, really? What's yeah. the word? Suh. Suh. Suh, okay. Yeah, and it's, it means color, but it also can mean sex. Huh. I'm sure that's no coincidence. <laughs> no, there are no coincidences. Uh, like I said, I'm a very much of a believer that everything that happens in your life gets prompted by 
a vibrational prompt from within your own field. So it's something you put there yourself. Yeah. Well, and I've really enjoyed the last several months of getting to know you better, and I appreciate your friendship, and I look forward to ongoing communication with you. Yes, and let's keep in touch. Again, thank you for doing this uh, second interview with me and for letting me and the readers have a, a glimpse into your, your life. Most welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Salish Wolf with Daniel Reed. To learn more about Daniel and his work, visit danreed.org. That's D-A-N-R-E-I-D.org. And check out his many amazing books anywhere books are sold. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. Stay tuned for the announcement of 2021 retreats during which I take men on purpose-driven adventures along British Columbia's wild coast. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcys. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at pacificrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming DocCast, Takea Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up residence on a tiny archipelago off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off. Thank you.